The Saker is a former military intelligence officer and writes analysis for his very important and popular blog, Vineyard of the Saker. Thank you for joining us. It is absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Sure. Now, I thought for a moment, naively, that when it was finally proven that Russiagate was a fraud concocted by the Democratic Party led by Hillary Clinton, reason would prevail and Russophobia would die down. But then I remembered we are not dealing with rational people, neither in government nor the naive citizenry that believes media propaganda. NATO continues expansion and the Pentagon continues its encirclement of Eurasia. Before we talk about the developments in Russian military superiority, at what stage are we in the new Cold War? Is it a calm before some storm or a slow burn toward Armageddon with endless economic, cultural, cyber and information warfare? Or will reason somehow prevail? Well, unfortunately, uh, first I would have to say we certainly cannot make the assumption that reason will prevail. Um, reason would dictate something pretty obvious that the United States and Russia have no objective uh, mean, um, reasons to fight each other at all. Um, for all the differences that could be between the two countries, they have much more in common and certainly have common problems. So common enemies, common challenges. So rational thought, logic would dictate a very good relationship um, between the two countries. I would even argue that Russia is an ideal partner for the United States because right now the Anglo-Zionist empire is clearly cracking. The U.S. does not have the means to sustain its policy of, of trying to be the world hegemon. So the best thing the U.S. can do is to draw down from the empire and to reduce its size by still negotiating with everybody else, including the Chinese, the Russians, and uh, other countries, to get the best possible deal during that drawdown. And I think Russia would be a perfect partner, but this is not happening because, as you said correctly, there is there are actually numerous lobbies in the West who desperately need Russia as a boogeyman. Uh, you mentioned NATO. NATO has no objective mission whatsoever. So NATO has a stake in creating a crisis, and then they go, well, we have to defend Europe against the incoming hordes of revanchist Russians, uh, then they suddenly have a mission. Um, in Europe, practically, I mean, I know these people, uh, I've, I've, I've seen them in my in my career. You're talking about an entire bureaucracy of, uh, of Western uh, military personnel and politicians who depend on maintaining a crisis with Russia for their entire careers, or they become useless, redundant, and they probably will be fired. In the United States, it's the same thing. You mentioned Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. They can't just say, oh, we lost the, war, uh, the vote against Trump because the American people didn't like us. That's unthinkable. Therefore, you have to find a boogeyman. Russia is the perfect boogeyman. It's Putin with his hackers and, you know, Russia today and this is assault on our democracy and let's circle the wagons and, you know, fight the evil Russians. So there actually, and there are more lobbies. I can list more for them, for you. You ask me where we are? We're in a very different situation from the Cold War. Um, I remember the Cold War. I was a Cold Warrior myself. I think the situation is much worse today for a simple reason. Um, during the Cold War, there were rational people on both sides who, for all the rhetoric and all the nonsense, you know, the, the politicians and the ideologues like to spew, they knew that the real mission of the USSR and the United States as nuclear superpowers was to prevent a, a nuclear war. And that means to prevent a war, and that means to act responsibly. 
I don't see that on the U.S. side today at all. Um, the U.S. Uh, diplomacy, for instance, has essentially completely disappeared. All the U.S. State Department does is deliver threats and warnings. Uh, that's not diplomacy. So there's no diplomacy happening. I, actually, because of the crisis inside the United States, there's no foreign policy at all that I could identify from the United States. So I see basically, um, I, I think of it as a decapitated empire. Right now, the U.S. empire is still strong, but it has no real command, no policy, no people thinking about the, you know, the geostrategic issues at stake. So that's very different from the Cold War, where there were experts on both sides. Not necessarily good people, but competent people. Today, I don't see that. So combine incompetent people with irresponsible rhetoric, and that's very dangerous because words have their own weight. You cannot say something for, for years and not eventually act on it. So for all the reasons, I'm extremely concerned about the future. I think there's, there's absolutely a real risk of war between the United States and Russia. My hope was, in conclusion, uh, that Trump would, was the solution to that, that he didn't want a war. He wanted a good relationship, and with him in power, you know, the two countries could finally start collaborating. And remember, Hillary wanted a no-fly zone over Russian, um, over the Russian military task force in Syria, which would have resulted in a war, I'm sure of that. So Hillary wasn't elected. I, you know, had a big sigh of relief. And now, you know, a coup happened against Trump. The neocons are right back in power. Trump is comprehensively castrated, can't do anything. So we have the same people. We essentially have the Hillary people more or less controlling the executive. That's a terrible combination. So again, I, be, I begin fearing um, a, a very real possibility of a conflict between the two countries. Okay, yeah, that's some scary stuff. Um, but on to the reports of the Russian military superiority over the U.S., which you have been writing about, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts have, has written about, and, and others. You have stated it a useless exercise to compare the armed forces of the two countries, and I, I will agree. So let's look at some timely headlines from this week that seem to support your conclusions. Russia mocks America for buying Israel's Iron Dome, which MIT, MIT expert Ted Postol says functions at a merely 5% success rate compared to the reported 80%. U.S. Navy's state-of-the-art littoral combat ships are outgunned by Russian designs a quarter of their size. And from the summer, it was reported the F-35 is a trillion-dollar national disaster and terrible fighter unfit for aircraft carriers. Some of the specific areas where Russia is demonstrating technological superiority is with the hypersonic Zircon missile, which allegedly nullifies Washington's anti-ballistic missile system, which perhaps is why they are seeking Israel's Iron Dome. I don't know. Where has American military tech gone so wrong and Russia gone so right? Well, there are a couple of explanations here. It's just a multi-factor thing. First of all, speaking about the, the Israeli purchase, Israel could sell America slingshots to shoot down uh, Russian missiles, and Americans would buy that just because it's Israel. So that doesn't prove anything. Um, the real I think the interesting question is, where did America go so wrong in terms of, of technology? And the answer to me is primarily corruption. Um, the, you, the, the military industrial complex is fantastically corrupt here. And the first and foremost, the, the, the design priority of modern American weapon systems is kickbacks for CEOs and, you know, um, basically theft and corruption for all the people involved at every stage. Um, there is also a design difference, I suppose. American weapons tend to be high-tech heavy. Um, 
basically when Americans see a mission, they, 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 they sorry, Americans see a number of technologies, they bring them to, together into a weapon system, and then they design a mission for it. The Russians work the other way around. They look at a mission and look at the cheap, cheapest technology that can actually um, make possible to, the, to execute that mission. So there's design philosophies, I think. Um, another thing that happened in Russia, I think is very different, is the Russians get much more, I mean, Dmitry Orlov wrote about that, but others have, that dollar per dollar, the Russians get 10 times more out of $1 spent than the Americans would, simply because of, um, actually it's amazing, but less corruption in Russia, and uh, much more control over how weapon systems are developed. Um, other things that contribute to that, imperial hubris, arrogance. Uh, a country that's constantly fed a diet of we're number one, we're invincible, the best military in the world, and all this this propaganda becomes very complacent. I mean, there are a lot of Americans out there. If you tell them that, say, a Russian weapon system X is better than theirs, they'll laugh at you immediately. They'll go, ah, those borscht eating, you know, drunken Rus Ruskies, what can they do? They, they, you know, and then they start giving you a long list of why Russians can't develop good weapons. So. It's really a mixture of many things that are all creating a perfect storm of more and there's increasing number of, of areas truly where Russia is ahead of the United States in, in terms of military technology. But I think the single most important one is that uh, armed forces always serve a political purpose. And the kind of mission that the Russian armed forces are giving today is commensurate with their actual abilities. Whereas the American uh, U.S. armed forces are essentially giving the mission to do everything everywhere on the entire planet at any time against, you know, several enemies. Nobody can do that, particularly not within constra political constraints that are given on top of that. You know, wars, wars have to be quick. They have to be relatively painless. So there are many factors contributing to um, what I see as an advantage for the Russians. Now, I have to stress one thing. The U.S., generally the West, has a huge advantage in, in terms of quantity. That still is true. And uh, remember the Russian military is designed to operate basically purely in defense of Russia. That includes probably you could see an operational depth of, you know, 300 to 500 uh, kilometers beyond Russian border. At the very furthest, that would raise, would go up to 1,000 kilometers to reach Syria. And now Russian reconnaissance strike capabilities, recently the Ministry of Defense has declared that conventional deterrence in Russia reaches a distance of 4,000 kilometers, I believe. But um, what it all means in practical purposes is that the mission is very limited, defend national territory, and very minimal, you know, limited in size interventions abroad. I mean, for instance, when we speak of Syria, keep in mind that the Russians never had there more than 35 combat aircraft at any time. That's tiny. It's, 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 it's an air regiment. It's very small. So that's another advantage. The Russians are much smaller, but they're also given smaller tasks, which makes them much more effective at doing it. And you made a great point um, that America has not a, won a war in a long time. You say Russia has, you just mentioned, the most capable armed forces, and we can see this in its rapid success in Syria. To use a silly analogy, America might be considered like your neighbor's kids who drop a paper bag filled with dog poop on your door, doorstep, light it on fire, ring your doorbell, and run as they watch the poop hit the fan, leaving behind, <laughs> leaving behind a disgusting mess. You know, the Cor Korean War, you know, wasn't the greatest success. 1953 ended in a stalemate. Uh, Korea completely destroyed. Uh, tens of thousands of Americans uh, dead. Vietnam, Afghanistan... 
uh, Iraq, Libya, etc. Could you speak on these failures as well as the Hollywood propaganda that is used to hype up this myth of an American colossus? Well, the Hollywood propaganda plays a crucial role because combined with an arrogant uh, diplomacy, it's designed to terrify the opponent. So when the opponent uh, comes to the conclusion that no matter what we do, the Americans will bring in more firepower, more forces, um, they can you know, bring many divisions of armor and even nuclear weapons. I mean, it sort of, it presses your, on your awareness and you start finding that, you know, resistance is futile. That is the purpose of a lot of American propaganda is what the Borg, you know, does in the Star Trek series. It says, you know, you shall be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Really, it's a form of psychological warfare. And the Americans have been extremely effective at that. What began changing is when countries started to think that, you know what? No, actually, I'm going to take my chance and fight it. And my favorite example is, of course, uh, the Israeli inv invasion of Lebanon in 2006, where the Israelis, you can think of them as, for all practical purposes, an extension of the U.S. military. That's why I, I, I use them interchangeably. The Israelis used everything they had, you know, from artillery to, of course, total supremacy in the air, um, their navy. I mean, everything was used to try to uh, crush Hezbollah. And it didn't work. And it didn't work simply because um, the fighters that were there on the ground on the Lebanese side we're not afraid anymore. They said, okay, you know, we call your bluff and we'll fight you. And what then happens, suddenly, when the PSYOP part, the propaganda part collapses, all you're left with is ugly warfare, not the kind of Hollywood offers. The kind of warfare where the victim shoots back and actually fights and dies as willing to die in defense of its national territory. That's not the kind of warfare Americans like. And uh, that's why their armed forces are very limited in where they can use them. I mean, look at the countries today that the United States, you know, Panama is one thing, Grenada is another thing. But if you're threatening the DPRK or Iran, you're threatening countries who have, in the case of DPRK, extremely solid retaliatory capabilities. And I'm not talking about nuclear weapons, I'm talking about conventional abilities to, to hit both Japan and Seoul, the capital of, of, of South Korea, which would have catastrophic consequences if that happened. Plus, it would be a major war, ground warfare. And in the case of Iran, you're talking about a country who was very much, um, you know, the prototype would be Hezbollah and South Lebanon. That's a country who's, who's capable of taking huge amount of, of, uh, of pain and still resisting. And there, if, if a war would start, the Iranians, they're going to be in it for one, two, three months, one year, two years, three years. The United States does not have that kind of sting power. So what's happening, what's interesting now is the United States is desperately trying to threaten countries which are not afraid anymore. So their bluff is called, and suddenly you realize this huge armada of aircraft carriers and, you know, 700 bases worldwide are useless. They serve no true function because they are not able to um, to persuade somebody to, to, to bow down and to be afraid. And uh, the last example that I would give is even nuclear weapons. You can essentially separate the countries that the United States would threaten with nuclear weapons in three categories. One is countries like Russia and China, who if hit, could hit back just as hard. And Russia could actually completely wipe off the United States as a nation. So that's not very use useful. A second group of countries would be what I mentioned, Iran and the DPRK. These are countries that don't have nuclear weapons. I don't really think the North Koreans uh, have deployable, usable warheads yet. 
Uh, but, if, let's, but even if they have it, let's pretend they don't. Uh, just by conventional means, they can do what's called an asymmetrical response and retaliate uh, in an unacceptable way without even having to have nuclear weapons. So you can't use it on them again. And then you have smaller countries, you know, Venezuela or Cuba come to mind, which of course you can nuke with impunity, but then you could also invade with conventional forces. So what's the point of having nuclear weapons? So you see on all levels, um, there are conceptual questions which are not asked by the military establishment here, of course. And uh, any kind of intelligent debate about the future of the U.S., the needs for, you know, armed forces, etc., is is completely suppressed by patriotic slogans about we're the best, we're number one. That's, uh, again, a decapitated system where the head is not thinking. And what about um, on the hybrid warfare, cyber and electronic uh, battlefield? What can we expect there? To be honest, I see no evidence of Russia being involved in any of that. I hear a lot of claims about it. Uh, I know that Russia has electronic warfare capabilities, but we're talking about tactical systems and, and uh, operational systems in terms of war fighting. Uh, cyber warfare, the idea that you have, you know, hires hackered by, um, hired by the hacker's heart, sorry, by the Ministry of Defense to um, disable the enemy system it's possible i'm not i don't have access to any classified information i don't know what the russians might have in in in, in that shape um i think it's mostly uh, this entire idea of hybrid warfare is mostly i think western propaganda and um yet again um more uh, you know a, a cop-out to explain failures in the west for instance if uh, in the public opinion shifts it's russian cyber warfare But as far as I know, there's still absolutely no evidence of any kind of, uh, there's plenty of evidence of the Israelis and the Americans using it. That is true. Uh, but Russians using cyber warfare, I've seen no evidence so far, so I can't comment on that. If they have that ability, they're either not using it or they're using it in a way that I'm not aware of. And just to touch on missile defense, I'm sure you saw, I think it was a year or two ago, when President Putin met with Western Uh, journalists and press, I think it was in Russia, and he, he, he said, well, what's the matter with them? That they are not getting the, the true facts and the word out to the West. And he was saying that uh, each year Washington is progressing its ability of, of its missiles and missile defense stationed in Europe to reach into um, Russia, which would, uh, you know, each year they're, they're Distance goes from, you know, 300, 400, 500, ultimately we'll go to a thousand kilometers and that Russia knows when that, when that will happen and Washington knows that Russia knows. What do you think Putin was uh, alluding to there? And in terms of missile defense, uh, what, what can happen there? I think the primary problem um, with this entire issue of missile defense is Europe is that this is a visible sign a proof if you want of the prostitution of east european countries that's the real purpose if you deploy your systems in poland and romania you prove to 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 the russians on one hand and to to the people themselves in eastern europe and to everybody else that these guys will do anything for us and it's it's a political affront to russia of course because it's provocative um But I don't think it's that much of a military challenge. I mean, the Russians have um, clearly threatened, and now they have deployed systems such as the Iskander um, tactical missile, but they have other means. 
which basically allow them to either neutralize or basically render these deployed missiles fairly useless. So um, there's a concern for the future. I mean, eventually the U.S. could surround Russia with with ABM systems. But keep in mind, the forward deploying is not necessarily an advantage. You are entering, the closer you are to the Russian border, the harder it is to defend um, any kind of installation. And you're, you know, all of what I mentioned, remember I said uh, maybe three, 500 kilometers, maybe to 1,000 uh, with strikes to 4,000. All of Europe is well within range of, of Russian capabilities. So I think uh, in military terms, the Russians have already, um, you know, while the Americans were discussing and making threats, the Russians simply deployed the system to counter it. So at this point, I don't see a threat for Russia uh, coming from these, uh, from at least no military threat uh, coming from these deployments. I'd like to also discuss the, the spiritual factor, which I think you, you touch on uh, on your blog. I think this is important, and history is a testament to the power that in outgunned nation can have when they possess a strong will to survive mm -hmm. annihilation. Um, because, you know, it's always the, the invading, the soldiers of the invading force have less of a real spiritual mission than those that are defending their, their nation. And, you know, Napoleon attempted to subjugate Russia in the 19th century, and Russia would have none of it. Hitler in the 20th century, and Russia almost single-handedly perhaps won World War to, and now in the 21st century, the American war machine is targeting Mother Russia, and Russians in Russia have personally told me in tears that they do not want a war. I remember a, a an older woman who told me she lost, you know, two or three family members in the Great Patriotic War, World War II, and she said that they don't want war, but they will defend their country if the United States or NATO invades, and they will, you know. Kill, kill me or kill you, the foreigner, the foreign invader, uh, and so on. So what can you say about this spiritual factor in Russia? Oh, it's absolutely crucial. Um, you know, Russia has undergone a tremendous change over the past decades. I mean, remember in... When communism fell in 1991, the Russians were, you know, the symbol for me was the Russian long queue standing on Pushkin Square to McDonald's to get a Big Mac. And that sort of was what Russia was all about, unfortunately, in the early 1990s. A lot has changed since. First of all, there was the horror of the 1990s. The Russians really felt what it is to be a U.S. colony. Furthermore, the Ukraine exploded, and what's going on there is another horror. And... Um, the Russian psyche just bounced back very hard. I always see the same thing. The Russians are afraid. Of, the difference between Russians and the Westerners is Russians are afraid of war. Westerners are not. But Westerners are not prepared for war. Russians are. Uh, and the reason why Russia, Westerners are not afraid of war is they don't understand it. They don't understand what would really happen, how horrible it would be. Russians do. You're absolutely correct. But they will also fight with everything they have. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever. And um, the Russians have been retreating all over the place. I mean, there's been essentially a strategic retreat of Russia going on for, for years, and now there's nowhere to retreat. So they're, on top of that, they're cornered. So at this point, you know, you're cornering a very, very dangerous bear, and that bear is fully willing to fight. I mean, the biggest difference that would be is, is uh, for instance, if you just watch Russian TV, the discussion about a potential war is, is happening on almost daily basis. Uh, in talk shows, in articles, in analyses, it's it's the big topic. Will there be war or not? And the state has actually been preparing for years. 
there have been specific, uh, you know, actions such as the recreation of tank armies is one of them, uh, the doubling of the size of the airborne forces. I mean, Russia has been proactively preparing for war, um, I would say, at least since 2014 and even before. And they're getting pretty ready. And why? Because they do feel that there is a threat against them. That's the other big difference. We live in, an inter in, a, in a world where all that U.S. propaganda and all the Russophobia is received in Russia and shown on Russian TV, and the Russians are acutely aware of it. They don't even need to speak English. Uh, the craziest Russophobic statements will be translated in Russian or subtitled. So they know very well what's looking at them, and they know it's not a friendly neighbor that they're seeing. So I think it plays a crucial role because, yeah, Russia will fight uh, if, if, God forbid, a war starts, the Russians will fight with a violence and a determination that is I mean, quite literally unthinkable in the West. I don't think anybody in the West understands and has a measure of the kind of willpower that Russian soldiers will have in defense of their of their motherland. Now, Russia is buying gold, going crypto ruble, linking to China's New Silk Road, forming an alliance with the House of Saud, Saud perhaps, Turkey and Iran. How do you assess Russia's geopolitical positioning for a potential conflict, and what are some of their most important strategic preparations, uh, do you think? I'm not so sure about the House of Saud, but I, I, I would agree with China and Iran. I think the main thing, okay, Russia has a problem, and the problem is what to do about the U.S. empire. Um, to confront it directly would be irresponsible. Uh, first of all, because Russia is still the weakest party. So if you're the weaker side, you have to be very smart. Um, what Russia does is slowly build up an alternative. S instead of completely withdrawing from uh, a U.S.-controlled economic, financial, uh, political uh, system, Russia is basically participating in the creation of a new parallel system destined to replace it, one which would be multipolar. Uh, you know, we can think of the BRIC BRICS countries as being one of the expressions of that alternative world one which would not have a world hegemon. And uh, the practical steps are de-dollarization de 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 and move away from the U.S. dollar, but it has to go beyond that. You have to, you can't really move out or away because the Western financial system is a monopoly, but you create a new one. You try to create alternatives and slowly, without confronting the, directly the West, build an alternative that's viable that would stand on its own, I think is the geostrategic plan. And what do you make of President Putin's revelation of possible U.S. targeting of the Russian population with the biological warfare? Oh, to be honest, first of all, um, I'm not a scientist, so uh, you know all I can make is, is a personal guess. I am not convinced about the biological warfare argument. Um, first of all, these technologies do exist. We know that, and I'm aware of that. The Russians have them too, by the way. Uh, they have admitted that the way they executed Khatab was by using uh, a poison coded to his DNA. That was an official admission on the Russian side. So there's, there's stuff out there that can do that. However, the Russian population is so ethnically mixed. There's no such thing as a pure Russian. Russians are all mixed heavily in ethnic terms. I don't see, I just don't see how you could weaponize uh, or, you know, you use DNA from Russia as, as uh, in, in terms of targeting specific population groups. I know the South Africans thought about that. They wanted to uh, create some kind of 
um, biological weapon that could be used against blacks, not against whites. I um, think the Israelis have a similar plan, unsurprisingly, um, to um, to deal with the Arabs versus Jews. I'm not sure theirs is going to head anywhere. I mean, biology is an area where we're so incompetent, so still, you know, for all the big pharma that we have, we can't even cure the common cold. I don't see um, biology-based weapons, particularly, you know, DNA-based weapons, as something that could be used in warfare. Uh, but maybe in economics, maybe to develop um, some kind of medicine that would be, then you would have, them, have a monopoly position, would give you an advantage. I mean, there's many other things that you can do with DNA information that is not, uh, you can create a, a bank maybe to trace people's DNA to see where they come from if you get somebody's DNA that you cannot identify. I think there's so many other things that can be done with collected DNA besides trying to weaponize it that my instinct tells me it's more likely than um, I don't see, you know, Americans trying to uh, spray Russia with uh, Russian destroying uh, bioweapons. I don't think that's that's happening, no. <laughs> yeah, and I was in Russia this year and uh, one of the places I visited was uh, Tatarstan, uh, the Tatar mm -hmm. Republic. And it's just amazing to learn that uh, there are hundreds of ethnicities and ethnic groups and just walking around Russia you see just such a great variation in, in, in the people's you know faces and, and complexions and it's uh, there's a huge diversity there but see it goes even further than that because for instance if you look at my uh, at, at my face I don't necessarily look tartar um, you know I have a Russian name I'm Russian Orthodox so you would think okay there goes a pure Slav no no not at all I have Tatar blood a lot. If you looked at the photos of my grandmother, you would see a completely Asian-looking woman. Um, my wife has Georgian blood. I mean, we're all mixed, heavily, heavily mixed. So even the putatively pure Russian is actually a, a very heavy mix of, of uh, over the centuries of very many different ethnic groups. So, you know, an ethnic weapon could probably used, be used against insular countries that are very isolated, maybe. But against such a heavily, you know, diverse population, I, I just doubt it. All right. And is there anything important I've left out or any final thoughts or comments to leave us with until nuclear Armageddon? Well, let's hope there is no nuclear Armageddon. I, I mean, I still, we have to hope for that. But I think uh, it's time to raise the alarm. I, I would encourage everybody listening to, to realize that the danger is absolutely real. And uh, the best way to, to prevent that from happening is to denounce the complete irresponsibility. I mean, that's the key thing, is, is irresponsibility of what is today the leadership of the U.S. empire. I think that's where the danger is. There's a common danger. That's the enemy for everybody. All of mankind, including the American people, have the same enemy today. And that's the 0.01% of Anglo-Zionists running the U.S. Anglo-Zionist empire. That's where the danger is. It should be denounced. And hopefully one day these people should be removed from power. That's what we should hope for. Because until they're there, we're all in danger. All right. Uh, your website is thesaker.is. That's the S-A-K-E-R.is. How else can people best follow and support your work? That's the best place to go. You have all the rest of the information, the rest of the sacred community, uh, sacred blogs in different languages. And um, I always make that disclaimer for those who might think that IS stands for Israel. I have had that question asked me many times. No, it stands for Iceland. So please come and visit the blog and uh, you'll find a lot there.